Hello and welcome to Euractiv's Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's Agri-Food News Team. So today we're talking about my favourite topic, soil. And that might sound sarcastic, but it's actually not. It's just my British accent. No, I really am a a soil enthusiast. Um, Who isn't? We all should be soil enthusiasts. Um, But why are we talking about soil? Well, soil health plays uh, an essential role in meeting the climate and biodiversity goals of the European Green Deal, both in the biodiversity strategy and also the farm to fork strategy. Also, the European Commission recently launched, I think last week, uh, a public consultation on its development of the EU soil strategy. Now, the aim of this new um, soil strategy will be uh, to address soil and land related issues in this kind of comprehensive way and help achieve um, land degradation neutrality by 2030, which is one of the key targets of the sustainable development goals. We spoke with soil expert Luca Montanarella, to hear more about the importance of soils and what this strategy is all about. Um, Luca, you're also the holder of a rather prestigious title, if I'm correct, the World Soil Champion. Yeah, it's called the World Soil Prize, yeah. Uh-huh. And what does that mean exactly to, to, what, to be a world soil? It's titled uh, after the famous uh, Russian soil scientist Glinka. It's the Glinka World Soil Prize that was established um, by the United Nations uh, first time in occasion of the International Year of Soils. It was in 2015. Mm-hmm. And since then, um, every year on occasion of the World Soil Day, which is the 5th of December, um, the United Nations award uh, a prize um for people or also for organizations that have been particularly active and distinguished in promoting uh, soil protection and, and sustainable soil management and, and so on. So you're really the best guy to talk about soil for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's why actually we wanted to ask your take about the recently launched uh, uh, public consultation uh, by the Commission on its development of the EU soil strategy. So could you outline briefly what exactly this strategy is and, and what it aims to do? The rationale behind the EU soil thematic strategy as we presented it already in 2006. So it's a strategy that already exists since 2006. Uh, when the Commission presented it to the Parliament and the Council. And uh, that strategy essentially was built on a, on a concept of having four pillars of activity. Uh, the first one was um, to further strengthen our knowledge about soils, so developing um, stronger research and, and development activities on soils. And I think that's been quite successful. So we know much more since 2006 about European soils, but I would say also globally. Uh, The second pillar of action was to integrate into existing EU policies uh, soil protection elements as far as possible. Typically, for example, in our common agricultural policy, that is a very relevant policy for soils, but also other policy areas like climate change, biodiversity, and so on. The third pillar of action was to raise awareness, so try to communicate more about soils, what we for example, are doing with this podcast, but I mean, you can do it also in many other ways so that people are aware that soils are relevant for all of us. Uh, 
And the fourth pillar of activity proposed at that time by the Commission was to have a binding legislation, so the famous Soil Framework Directive, as proposed by the Commission, that maybe you know then um, didn't uh, make it till the end because of the strong opposition of some uh, of, of a blocky minority in Council of some member states. And so in 2014, uh, the Commission decided to withdraw the proposal for a Soil Framework Directive. And now there is a fresh start uh, to um, have a new go to the EU soil thematic strategy. And so this consultation is essentially to understand better what could be in this new revised EU soil thematic strategy, what elements, what the ideas are that citizens, stakeholders and others uh, can bring to, to, this, to this new revamped soil strategy, which is, by the way, embedded into the wider EU soil biodiversity strategy or biodiversity framework. Uh, so a new angle to soils, which is looking more maybe into the fact that soils are a very large biodiversity pool. So there's often more life be- below ground than above ground. Soil has really gained in, in importance over the, the past few years. And, and you've also recently launched the uh, European Soil Observatory. But do we currently have a clear picture of the uh, soil degradation situation in the EU? And I mean, how serious is the situation uh, in the EU? Europe has a very old um, heritage, if I can say so, of uh, anthropogenic so human impact on soils. Because it's a part of the world that has been um, developed uh, or, or let's say has has have a very strong human development uh, particularly industrial in the last 100 200 years and economic development which of course has an impact on soils so you will very hardly find in europe any spot which has soils which are not affected by human activities uh, so soils have been shaped by now in europe by human uh, intervention Actually, in many cases, this would be also resulting in a beautiful landscape. I mean, for example, I'm from Italy. The Italian landscape is essentially shaped by human activity. So um, soil degradation in Italy started at Roman times when the first deforestation was done by the Roman Empire. So um, it's a very long history. So it's very difficult to say where do we want to go back with the new effort that we've put on the table of doing soil restoration. Certainly for many of us, what is of greatest concern is the issue of soil contamination. So uh, a very big heritage of old contaminated sites. Uh, We estimate around 3 million sites across the EU. And the second issue that is uh, in the front of all of us is, of course, the issue of soil sealing. So the very rapid development of infrastructure, housing, urbanization on very often the most productive and more precious soils for agriculture. You did mention just now about, you know, this question of what what we go back to and what we're aiming for. And there was this, um, the recent proposal by the European Commission for a soil health uh, and food mission. And it set this kind of ambitious challenge of ensuring that by 2030, uh, 75% of EU soils are healthy. But I was wondering, um, from your kind of scientific perspective, you can bring to this discussion, um, how are healthy soils defined? Like, do we have a clear definition of this? Because obviously, soils incredibly complicated, biological, chemical, physical. You know, is there this uh, an established kind of methodology for saying that something is healthy or across the EU? 
the word healthy soils is now very fashionable. Mm-hmm. In general, the word the word health is very important now for all of us. So healthy soils uh, should also relate to healthy people. That's the the rationale behind the the vision on soils as, as from a health perspective. So healthy soils are defined as soils that are in the condition to deliver the uh, ecosystem services and functions that we expect from soils. Typically, a healthy soil will be in condition to produce healthy food, for example. Uh, But healthy soils are also in condition to uh, provide us with healthy drinking water. So it's a a big engine that filters our water and then allows us to have clean drinking water. But healthy soils could be also defined as soils which uh, deliver uh, uh, ecosystem services through their biodiversity pool. So a healthy soil is a living soil. So um, you can address it from many sides. If you ask for a precise definition of healthy soils, I think you always must put it in connection with the functions that you expect from soils. Uh, ultimately, it depends what you want from your soil. So it depends on the type of land use and the type of use that you want to do with your soils. You also spoke about, you know, this long history of kind of anthropogenic human impact on soils. Of course, when we talk about agriculture and soil and also humans and soil, um, we also speak of overgrazing, deforestation, you know, problems that kind of degrade soils. But there is this rise of regenerative agricultural movements which uh, work to rebuild soils. Um, what do you see as the potential for this? Kind of how optimistic are you here? I mean, there's it's always quoted about how slowly soils take to form, about how humans degrade soils. But, you know, does this take into account the role that humans have that we can speed up this process and kind of rebuild soil carbon and organic matter? Yeah, regenerative... Um... Soil management or regenerative agriculture in general is now a very strong movement, I must say. And I'm always a little bit afraid that these type of movements are a little bit waves of uh, following certain, uh, how can I say, buzzword and fashions and that are coming and going. Uh, in principle, certainly, we should try to find ways to uh, bring back soils in the condition that we would define as healthy. And the regenerative um, movement is essentially looking into the issue of incorporating more organic matter in soils. So soils which have more organic matter in general are considered more healthy, For the, first of all, because, of course, high organic matter levels mean also higher uh, biodiversity, so more life in soils. Life in soil is only possible if there is organic matter. But also there is the big driver of climate change. So uh, one of the strong motivations for incorporating uh, more organic carbon in soils is that, of course, this carbon is then stored in soils instead of going to the atmosphere. And so it means soils can potentially play a role in mitigating climate change. Um, then at the very end, I think we always need to strike a balance because at the very end, we need to live on this soil. So um, uh, uh, dreaming of bringing back soils to a pristine uh, condition, which may be possible in, uh, in some nature conservation areas, certainly. But if you want to do uh, some economic activities on these soils, then there is no way out. There will be even if a maybe minor impact, but there will be an impact on soils. And the big question is where to strike the balance uh, between uh, economic activities, uh, which are viable and uh, sustainable soil management. You you mentioned these um, economic activities. Uh, there are 
actually many debates uh, raging in the agricultural world about livestock production. So, uh, for instance, there was one on, during the unveiling of the cancer plan on the promotion policy of uh, meat products. But there's also a debate on, on uh, the contribution uh, of the livestock to uh, greenhouse gas emissions, climate change. But how important are livestock in the production and in maintenance of healthy soil? I mean, from a soil perspective, what is the role of, uh, of livestock in, in agriculture? There is a huge role, of course, and it depends very much how you manage this livestock. So if you're talking about livestock that is uh, grazing in rangelands, um, it's one thing. If you're talking about livestock that is kept in intensive uh, production uh, sites, uh, it's another thing. Both have a very strong impact of soils, of course, because one of the biggest issues that we have, uh, especially in some parts of Europe, but also in other parts of the world, is that um, industrial livestock production in an intensive uh, production sites, of course, generates a lot of waste, organic waste, essentially manure and waste from, from animal production that needs to go back to the soils. And this, of course, very often creates an overload of soils with, with, with for example, nitrates. So we have for that a nitrates directive that should take care of this issue. Um, but there is also, of course, the other side that you could have uh, livestock production in an extensive manner on, on rangelands. And, of course, there is a very strong movement to go back to that type of livestock production. Even so, also that production, of course, has an impact on soils. And also that production has an impact on climate change through emissions from, from livestock, particularly methane emissions. But it's, again, the same thing I was saying before, to strike a balance between what is um, better for the soils, but still maintaining a, a, what we need for our daily life. So, um, um, of course, uh, dreaming of a world where everybody will be vegetarian will be, would be a dream, but it's not the case. So uh, we need to find a balance here in order to have a sustainable management of our limited soil resources. Just pushing a bit more on this topic, in terms of, you know, the importance of kind of livestock and, and, and manure in the kind of cycle of soil, do you think there's kind of enough discussion? I mean, we speak a lot at the EU level in, when we talk about agriculture, of just reducing animals. Do you think there's enough discussion around also their contribution to soil um, health and this kind of nuance in the discussion? It's a topic which is very old, by the way. We have a year-long discussion about this issue. I mean, the nitrates directive is not a new directive. It exists already since many years. Um, uh, so we have we have a long-standing issue in some parts of the European Union, and I must say particularly in Northern European Union member states, uh, of, of course, intensive livestock production uh, associated with, of course, a huge impact on soil resources due to the need to put somewhere the waste products or the manure or the sludge. Or, uh, so um, this is a recurring issue. I mean... Um, and to come out of that problem, probably, well, uh, it's very difficult to find a solution unless you change consumption habits, unless you change um, even some entire economic systems. Uh, so it's not an easy solution to that. We mentioned in our in our discussion um, regenerative farming, and there's one concept of regenerative farm, farming, which is the soil carbon sequestration. And, and it's actually one of the cornerstone of uh, regenerative farming. Um, and 
it's actually a matter of discussion at the EU level, particularly uh, the the potential of of carbon farming to uh, sequester CO two emission. Uh, while at the same time regenerated the degraded agricultural soil. So uh, I, w- I want to know your take on the current discussion on um, carbon farming at the EU level and also um, what do you think about this taboo on, on uh, the carbon market for uh, agriculture, uh, which is it's, it's quite, um, again, it, it's a taboo uh, at the EU level. It's not really a taboo. It's simply that we must admit that organic carbon in soil builds up very slowly. Um, measuring soil organic carbon changes in soils is extremely costly because um, changes are so uh, slow that you need to sample a lot of soil samples till you detect a change uh, ruling out your measurement error. So uh, in general, your measurement error is bigger than the change that you want to detect. So you are practically unable to document in a robust way changes over short time uh, lapse. Of course, if you look about uh, over 50 or 100 years, then you can, of course, document substantial soil organic carbon accumulation uh, in soils. I mean, we have few cases in, in, in Europe, particularly, for example, in Rosamsted in UK, where you have long-term experiments that have been documenting over more than 100 years on the same site, measuring continuously soil organic carbon and have been documenting and under different, different management practices how soil organic carbon develops. Um, the problem is always uh, the verification issue. So the issue, how you certify that a certain plot has been accumulating soil organic carbon. But in my view, this is not really a stumbling block because uh, what we should uh, reward is not really the tons of carbon that somebody is accumulating in soils. It's simply the fact that somebody is changing management practices towards something that is more sustainable. So we know exactly which agricultural practices are favoring uh, soil organic carbon accumulation. So if we support these type of practices, I'm pretty sure that at the end we will accumulate soil organic carbon in these soils. Uh, even so, we will not certify exactly till the second decimal uh, the, 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 the amount of carbon that has been stored over time. And I just have one last question because soil is my, one of my favorite topics. You, you spoke before about how there's you know, this, this need to, to think about biodiversity in the soil. There's more life below um, than above the ground. And I, I'm wondering, you know, I think so often we think of soil as kind of chemical and physical and, and we overlook a bit the microbiology and the biology side of, of soil. How important is that aspect? And do you see enough kind of recognition of the importance of that? I must say, when we presented our strategy in 2006, it was practically totally unknown. Mm. Um, Actually, in the strategy, if you read the 2006 document of the commission, we were asking for stronger investment into research into soil biodiversity. Uh, For example, we hardly have still classified all the organisms that live below ground. So of many of them, we don't even know the existence and the the species has not been uh, identified. Uh, So there is a big um, unknown below ground that still has to be explored. And that's one of the main reasons why we are convinced that we should protect this biodiversity pool before it's lost. Now, um, 
since 2006, a lot has happened. I must say we have invested really a lot in understanding better. For example, we, we, we created a global soil biodiversity initiative. We have now a global soil biodiversity atlas, an European soil biodiversity atlas. There are plenty of new evidence of the large biodiversity pool in soils. Uh, now the big question is what to do with it. So um, for the moment, we hardly have seen any, for example, uh, protection effort for soil biodiversity. People simply are not aware that there is below ground biodiversity that should be protected as the above ground biodiversity. Uh, for example, there's a big discussion, what is the impact on soil biodiversity of, of agrochemicals, for example, of pesticides, of herbicides, of, 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 of intensive fertilization? There are plenty of issues that still are rather unknown or little known, let's say. Definitely. And it's quite an interesting kind of thing to consider when we're talking about approvals of certain chemicals or, you know, or, or reducing them that we don't really know the impact on the on the soil biodiversity. For example, right now we have a huge discussion about microplastics and uh, degradation in soils of um, waste materials. Um, uh, and there's a big question, is really soil such an engine that can degrade, for example, biodegradable plastic, uh, biodegradable mm. uh, materials? You know, um, we have a big uh, buzz now about using also in agriculture, biodegradable films. Uh, mm. um, of course, this can only work if soil is alive. So if if the engine below ground is alive, then it can degrade waste materials. Otherwise, it will not work. So um, it's really a big question, I would say. And after this interview, very dense of information on, on such an important topic, we'd like to conclude this week's podcast uh, with another piece of news that comes from the European Parliament. So on, on Friday, uh, the 2020 Parliameter has been published. It's the yearly Eurobarometer survey uh, commissioned by the European Parliament, which tries to understand new trends in the public perceptions on the EU or on the work of the MEPs. Why this year's editions was particularly important? Because the survey was conducted by the data consultancy Cantar between November and December 2020, thus taking into account the first impact of the pandemic on public perceptions. And also, uh, the base of the poll is also quite relevant. Uh, we're talking about more than 27,000 respondents from all across Europe. And here are the two main aspects uh, to point out when it comes to agriculture and food. First, um, providing affordable and safe food, as well as a fair standard living for farmers, is quite high in, in the EU citizens' wish list. It, it is ranked fifth among all the priority topics, with 26% of respondents who are more likely to prioritize food and farmers' living conditions in the EU agenda, which is quite remarkable because, for instance, um, measures to develop renewable energy and uh, reach carbon neutrality, which are sometimes more promoted by the same EU institutions. So th these um, measures for renewable energy come after the traditional measures in the EU agricultural policy, namely uh, food safety and farming subsidies. And also uh, food safety and farming subsidies uh, overtook 
other priorities like uh, better cooperation on trade with global players, ensuring full employment. So there's a bit of agri-proud, let's say, because again, we're not talking about uh, things that uh, are front page news. And the second aspect that I want to highlight is that agriculture, food and fishery uh, are perceived by EU citizens, quite surprisingly, I'd say, as a major area of disagreement between the EU and national governments. So agri-food and fisheries are in the top three of these main areas of disagreement uh, following uh, migration, which is still an outstanding bone of contention, and uh, protection of environment and biodiversity. No less in Ireland, agriculture, food and fishery um, as an area of disagreement uh, rank highest. So we, we asked the Irish uh, MEP Luke Flanagan to explain a bit why the general public presume that this is Ireland's uh, major area of disagreement with the EU. And he said that the poll um, results are most likely due to the largest farming or organization, the IFA, uh, objecting to rules and regulation of the Common Agricultural Policy on a regular basis. But also uh, respondents in Latvia, the Netherlands and Finland say that they perceived agriculture and fisheries as a, an apple of discord between uh, uh, their governments and the EU. I'd say that for Latvia and the Netherlands, uh, the issue might be related to fisheries uh, because there have been some controversial decisions uh, taken at the EU level. For instance, the fishing quota in the Baltic Sea that have been trimmed uh, for an overfish stock like cod, and that had some social economic consequences in Baltic fisheries and so also on Latvian economy, for instance. At the same time, the Netherlands uh, clashed with the EU on the issue of uh, electric uh, pass fishing. Uh, from my point of view, one of the most interesting topics that I covered, it's, it's full of layers. It's, uh, it's the, the typical topic where no one is right and no, no one is wrong. And it is basically this uh, about this controversial practice that consists of sending electric signals to stun and, and startle fish away from the seabed before scooping them up in the nets. Uh, there was this war between France and the Netherlands. Um, some NGOs attacked the Netherlands. Uh, the EU, uh, in the end, bought the French stance and they proposed this ban for this practice. And I remember I was in Strasbourg when, uh, when there was uh, the final vote on this ban. And there was this uh, Dutch MEP uh, that uh, was bringing a Dutch folk singer uh, who wrote a song for the fishermen, uh, composed for the occasion. So, I mean, I, I can see why fisheries perhaps uh, led to this public perception uh, more than agricultural staff, although there are some concerns on, on Mercosur as well uh, in the Netherlands. And lastly, perception of Finnish people, this perception of, uh, of uh, agriculture and fisheries as a major um, area of disagreement, could be explained with the Russian embargo that uh, particularly affected the dairy sector in Finland, 
or at least is what the Finnish MEPs that I've contacted told me. Uh, they, they were surprised too um, about this uh, this outcome. This week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euractiv's AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foot, with the technical support of Evi Chiorri. This podcast is also available on all major podcast streaming platforms. That includes Amazon, Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. I'm Natasha Foote. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This podcast is part of Euractiv's project Beyond Agriculture, funded by the IMCAP program of the European Union. The content of this podcast represents the views of the author only and is his, her, sole responsibility. The European Commission does not accept any responsibility for use that may be made of the information it contains.